Good morning. Always good to be here. Our reading this morning is the fourth chapter of James. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is a sin. So turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be looking uh, one more time here at Ephesians or at verses 26 and 27 as we wrap up this uh, short series on anger. And I want to give glory to... Uh, God, the Holy Spirit, who once again, as He always does, uh, plans our services way better than we could ever plan them. And and so the song we just sang is going to fit so beautifully with what we're going to talk about uh, toward the end of our lesson today. And and it'd be so helpful to understand if you're starting to think through that as we worshiped and sang that song, uh, and then we're going to come back with uh, some similar thoughts on that uh, in a little bit. So, And these are things that we, we need to grasp because our suffering sometimes can be intense and, and are very, uh, you know, they, they throw us for a loop and, and they're hard. And um, we need that understanding of the Lord and how He works. And that's what we're going to talk about again. So uh, thankful to the Lord for planning it this way. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. Get serious about sinful anger, part 2. Get serious about sinful anger. Sinful anger has fractured marriages, families, churches, friendships. It has hardened people against God. It has led some people into a lifelong loathing of themselves. 
You know, God intended anger to be a good thing, to be something that would motivate us and compel us to do good. But instead, we sinners end up doing great harm. That's why we are called, as we said last time, to obediently and skillfully prevent sinful anger, to obediently and skillfully. We're given those skills in in passages like the one before us today, where we're given principles. This is how you deal with it. And we have to obey the Lord. When He says, be angry and do not sin. That's obedience. We have to obey Him. Don't sin when we get angry. This morning we're going to look at various ways that sinful anger manifests itself, some common, typical ways that we all do wrestle with to some degree. We need to more quickly recognize sinful anger because, you know, as, as I said before, quoting Ed Welch, anger seems so sure of itself. And that's how whenever we are angry, we are sure of ourselves. We might be wrong, but we are sure of ourselves. And so we need to be able to recognize when our anger is sinful so that we can be committed, become committed to do the work needed to prevent it. To see it before it happens. To, see, to, to understand that, okay, what's welling up within me, I'm telling myself it's righteous, but to say, you know, I'm not so sure. And then to do something about it. As we said before a few lessons ago, there are two basic purposes or goals to anger, and this would apply to both uh, sinful and righteous anger, different goals. And they are appropriate in their, in their own regard, but we're going to see that one of them is not appropriate for us as individuals. So the, uh, one of them, our anger for us as individuals should be constructive. Righteous anger will motivate us toward that which is constructive. It will motivate us toward a biblical solution. And so that is, that's what we ought to work toward, to have righteous anger so that it's, it is constructive. For those of us as individuals, our anger should not be punitive. In other words, our goal should never, never be to punish and there's a difference between understanding chastisement and punishment. Okay, chastisement is constructive. The, the goal in chastisement is to correct, to train. The goal in punitive anger is simply to punish. It's an end in itself. There, there's a, you know, a good place for that, a righteous place for that, but that's not for us as individuals. Vindictiveness is the chief expression of sinful anger. As we we see this in counseling, we see this in our relationships, we see it in our own hearts, that whenever we sin in our anger, it typically is vindictiveness of some sort and at various levels and degrees. Webster's defines anger as a feeling of displeasure resulting from injury, mistreatment, opposition, etc., and usually showing itself in a desire to fight back at the supposed cause of this feeling. And that's a pretty good definition of sinful anger. And it doesn't apply well at all to righteous anger. But it does apply to sinful anger. And because that is what most humans experience most of the time, that's what they say the definition of anger is. 
the idea behind vindictiveness. Someone has hurt you, and you want to hurt them back. Uh, for whatever happened, you want them to pay. We can become vindictive when we don't get our way. Someone mistreats us. Someone sins against us. Uh, they rob us of our rights. Our expectations are not met. We might become vindictive in response to someone else's anger. Maybe our pride has been bruised. And think here, for example, uh, commonly this will be when we're embarrassed. So I've used, uh, picking on your kids a bit, you know, I've used the throwing yourself down in the store, you know, with a, uh, with a temper tantrum, okay? And mom or dad, they're embarrassed by that. You know, especially if they were just, you know, telling somebody about Jesus and we go to church and all of a sudden you do that. Okay, now mom is embarrassed. And and so she could respond, shouldn't, but could respond with vindictive anger. In other words, to punish you for embarrassing her. And parents, just, you know, this is the right way to think about that. Don't discipline your child because they embarrassed you. Discipline them because they sinned. So now, sometimes they don't sin. You know, they just don't do as well in school as their brother or sister or something like that. And you're embarrassed because, oh, you know, everybody knows that, you know, I was so good in school. Now my kid, okay, that they didn't sin. But if they sinned, you discipline them because they sinned. And for that sin, and you let them know it's because of what you did, okay? And not because they embarrassed you. But that vindictive anger can be when our pride is bruised. Or you've heard us say before uh, this in some form or another. We get angry when either we don't get what we want or we get what we don't want. Right? And so that those are some examples, and there's plenty more, of how we can become vindictive. And vindictive anger takes many forms. Venting, you know, using hurtful language and, uh, you know, bad language that we're going to talk about later as we move through Ephesians 4. <clears throat> Sarcastic comments, belittling the other person, maybe even internalizing anger by resentment. You know, we have to, it's, this isn't all the explosive outward anger. I mean, that's very typical, but that's not always the case. You know, you might be someone who, what you immediately do with vindictive anger is you're just like, you know, and you don't ever say anything. And you're just, you know, you now they ask you a question and, you know, you don't say anything. You know, it's just, that's vindictive. Okay? And that internal kind of resentment that, you know, they know you're angry when that happens. Uh, as I said, temper tantrums. That's an example. And, and one of the things, I've said this before, that concerns me as a shepherd. People today are, are making a habit of stirring up anger. Yes, we, we should expose evil. We talked about that in our first lesson on anger, that there is a place for us to expose anger, to, to even speak up about things, uh, or not expose, to expose sin. And that should be a righteous anger response. So we see sin and we should expose it as it, it's in, in our circles and, and we say something about that. And maybe we need to do something about that. Maybe we need to speak up. There's a place for that. But should we be digging up dirt and venting about it all the time? 
You know, and I've cautioned us against uh, there's there's folks out there that they make a living with their and there are good podcasts and there are bad podcasts and there are good blogs and there are bad blogs and good sermons and bad sermons and there are people who make a living at digging up dirt and then venting about it in their anger and they they want to make you angry too. What does that say about us if we have this this steady diet of other people's anger? What does that say about us? Well, we might actually be sinning. Think about Proverbs 22, verse 24. Do not associate with a man given to anger. And yet, do you find yourself keeping going back to that blog where the guy or the podcast where he or she is just, you know, making you angry about something else? You might be sinning because you probably shouldn't be associating with that person. John Piper cautioned against preachers focusing on how bad things are. He warned, the last thing we want is for the people to walk out of church on Sunday seething with anger at their culture. That's not what church is about. Oh, there's plenty for us to be angry with out in culture, right? We see new stuff all the time coming. But that's not church's place. It's not our job to, to leave, you know, have you all, you know, steaming and leaving here just saying, you should be leaving here more in love with Jesus, more, you know, worshiping Him in your hearts and eager to serve Him in this new week ahead of you and to bring Him glory. We need to be getting people oriented to the sovereignty of God. That's one of the things that Piper followed up with. We need to help people understand God is sovereign. And then orient them over and again to the gospel. God saves sinners. And He sanctifies them. You know, you listen to some folks and you, you get this idea that God's not sovereign and, and that He's not doing anything. He can't do anything. If you, even though they don't believe that, that's what you get, the idea you get from them. So those are some examples of uh, the vindictiveness, the... Um, this sort of sinful anger that we find today. Outside of God and the state, the government, anger is sinful when your goal is punitive, when you're seeking to punish. Okay, For us, punishment is a selfish desire. You simply want your pound of flesh. You want them to pay for what they've done. And that is sinful it does nothing to improve the other person, that sort of anger. Think about that. And, and John Murray, in his book, Principles of Conduct, he says that punishment has of itself no regenerating or converting power. Even God's punishment. God's punishment doesn't intend to convert or, or make someone better because when God punishes someone, it's over. That's the end. Okay, he... he Sends them to eternal punishment. It's not. A, it's not going to be an opportunity for some um, rehabilitation or anything. And so, for us, that's not for us. Our anger should always be constructive. That should always be our goal. <clears throat> and one of the things about punitive anger for us as individuals is that it will prevent us from uh, responding righteously. 
that prevents us from responding righteously. We're going to look at that in just a second in James chapter 1, verse 20. But first, let's read from Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. We encountered two principles there, along with those two commands. Uh, how do we prevent sinful anger? So Ephesians 4, verse 20, uh, 26. Two commands. Be angry and yet do not sin. And now two commands that are principles. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. In other words, when if you have righteous anger, then you need to deal with that quickly. Okay? If you have sinful anger, you need to deal with that even more quickly, right? Take care of it right away. And to go along with that is this idea of don't leave the door open to the devil. Because whenever you let your anger linger... Uh, you can see this clearly. If you're sinfully angry, then you're leaving doors wide open. Doors, the windows, everything's open to the devil. But even your righteous anger, if you don't deal with it in a timely way, you're leaving the door open to the devil because there could be something that you are righteously angry about. You should be angry about. Somebody has sinned against you. Or maybe there's there's something out there in the, in the culture, in the government, that are, that, are, that is wrong. And if you don't deal with it biblically and quickly, you still are leaving the door open to the devil because the devil can come in and take something that was righteous, a righteous anger, and start making you resentful or making you angry in, in punitive ways. <clears throat> so let's discuss some additional principles that we find from uh, elsewhere in God's Word to help us prevent vindictive anger. Turn over to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, and we'll read a couple of verses. Uh, many of you are probably familiar with these. James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. James says, and, and a little bit further down, halfway through the verse here, because he's talking about something prior. Uh, now he says, But let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Why? For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And that's what I was talking about earlier, that it, your sinful anger will prevent you from responding righteously. That's what he's talking about there. Okay? But what he said here in verse 19, slow to anger, does that contradict what Paul said? Paul said, be quick, right before the sun goes down. So are they contradicting each other? Well, not at all. James is telling us to be slow to become angry. Be slow to become angry. He's not talking about being slow to deal with your anger. See, what James is doing here is he says, okay, so there's something out there that you perceive as evil. Maybe a sin or something. Be slow to get angry about it. Righteous or unrighteous, you know, be slow about that. Okay, well, we're going to talk about why. What Paul is saying is that once you have become angry, you deal with it quickly. Don't let your anger fester and continue and linger. You see, so they're talking about two different things. James says, you know, be slow in becoming angry. Paul says, once you are angry, deal with it quickly. Okay. So what James is saying 
here, be slow to become angry. In other words, be patient through the Spirit, right? Exercise self-control, again, through the Spirit. Be discerning. Proverbs 19.11 says, A man's discretion makes him slow to anger. See, So use wisdom. And, and Can you think of a chapter in James that talks about wisdom? The one we're in, right? So he, he's talking about wisdom. And he's still talking about wisdom here. He's still got this, this in his mind. Okay, this is wise to be slow to become angry. In other words... Ask questions first before you become angry. Did that person break one of God's commands? And can I can I identify it in Scripture? Or did they just fail to meet my expectations? Which is really common. And it's not... They maybe haven't broken God's law. Do I need to die to self? Ouch. <laughs> that one's not fun, right? But we need to ask ourselves that. Because there's plenty of things out there around us, close to us and far from us, you name it, for us that could potentially make us angry, righteously or unrighteously. And we need to be slow in this and ask ourselves questions. Ask yourself, am I... Being easily provoked, 1 Corinthians 13.5, describing biblical godly love there. It's not easily provoked. Well, am I being easily provoked? Is it, is it just like I've got such thin skin that I just get angry about things right off, you know, fly off the handle like that? Is now the right time to address this? Another thing you might need to ask yourself. Is this something that I can cover? We're going to come back to that in a second. Vindictiveness responds to personal offenses, and I'm, this is vindictiveness is what I'm calling sinful anger. Now, God does vindicate. Okay, we're going to look at that in Romans 12, and that's righteous and holy and good. Okay, for us, remember I said punitive anger is not for us individuals, and so vindictiveness in that sense is what I'm describing as that sin for us to do. Okay. It responds to personal offenses. And so it is a selfish response. In his commentary, J.A. Motter explains that our anger is usually heavily impregnated with sin. Self-importance, self-assertion, intolerance, stubbornness, just to name a few. You see, it's about personal offenses. It's it's a self-centered thing. So how should we deal with personal offenses? Well, many of those personal offenses should be covered. There's two ideas in the Bible about covering, and we're going to talk about both of them uh, here in just a moment. But you might be thinking, okay, John, I'm going to assume that you would say that suppressing your anger is bad. And I would say yes. Remember, we talked about dealing with it before the sun goes down, right? Principle, deal with it quickly. So, is that the same thing as covering it? No, not at all. They're two very different things. Suppressing anger is you've already become angry, and and now you're you're just you know you're just going to stay angry, and you're just you know, and it, it just stays inside, but it, it fumes and seethes. And covering means you deal with it, you address it, but you address it in a way. It's just. 
you yourself address it because you were the one who was offended. You see, suppressing anger never moves toward a biblical solution. Covering sin is a biblical solution. It's one of the options we have open to us. Okay, so someone sins against you, you can cover it. And in fact, you do more than you realize, probably. Because we sin against each other. And as those things happen, there's, there's so many times and we, you know, you can't address every sin. You know, there's just not enough time in the day, right? <clears throat> and so you, you do a lot of, now, you, you're covering it in a sense, but not, maybe not biblically, and we're going to talk about what that means. Biblical covering in this instance, and in what he's talking about here, what we're going to be talking about, is that you quickly choose to let your anger rest. In other words, you shut the door on the devil. Okay, so what you're doing when you're covering it in this regard is you're saying, okay, so they did this and they said something to me that was hurtful. Okay, and you say, you know, now's not the best time to to deal with this. Or, you know, that's the first time they've ever done that or it hardly ever happens. I'm just not going to I'm just going to cover that. Now, there comes a point where you have to stop covering in this regard, and we're going to talk about covering in another regard, okay? <clears throat> but what you're doing is you're putting, you're choosing to, to put your anger to rest. So it, your anger, righteous anger, moves you to a biblical solution. One of those, as we've talked about, is, is to deal with it, to address it. But one option is to cover it. To say, okay, for me, that's done. It's gone. I'm not... I don't feel like I should address that right now. And if it comes up again, that may be the time for me to address it. Okay? You cover it. So, cover sin by overlooking it. Okay, so this is, we talked about being slow to become angry. It's one way of helping us not, to learn not to be vindictive. So be slow to become angry. Two, cover sin by overlooking it. And the Bible says, 1 Peter 4, 8, love covers a multitude of sins. And, and then we find also in Proverbs that, plus this, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger, which I read a minute ago, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. It's his glory to overlook a transgression. And you know, a lot of times we don't really want the glory, do we? We want our pound of flesh. You know, and we need to think about that. It's it's a man's glory when it's appropriate to overlook a transgression. John MacArthur explains that a Christian should overlook sins against him if possible and always be ready to forgive insults and unkindnesses. And of course, this takes wisdom to know when when to do this, when to apply it. Okay, we don't have time to go into all the, the details of various times you might ought to uh, address sin as opposed to covering it. But uh, Bruce Waltke in his commentary on Proverbs says, The offended person overlooks all sorts of irritating and offensive violations of his rights. And I, I want to comment on that term, rights. Okay, that's a biggie for us, right? You know, we're like, well, I have a right to... And you fill in the blank. And, and you all have it, okay? And we wrestle with that. And if our rights, if we're robbed of our rights, if we don't get our rights, we get vindictively angry. And 
If you have struggles with that, I recommend to you Wayne Mack's book on anger and stress management, God's Way. He's got a nice long section in there, one of the application sections, and he gives you 22 different options of rights, which is only a you know fraction of ones that, but they're common ones that we experience. And then he works with you through that to help you realize, you know, it's not, I should not be angry when I feel like my rights have been violated. Okay, that's a personal offense. I need to be angry when they have sinned against God, when they've broken His commands, not when they've offended me. Okay, I'm not saying that there's not ever a place to address those things, but you should not have vindictive anger. So be slow to become angry, cover sin by overlooking it. And this, this idea of covering, Christians get really mixed up about this because you read one verse and it says overlook, okay? And then you read another verse and it says to deal with it. You're like, okay, which is it? And so you get people that say, oh, it's always overlooking. And other people say, no, it's never overlooking. It's always dealing with it, you know? Well, it's both. Okay, you're just using the, the Bible writers are using the term cover because they're saying it has been successfully dealt with. You've, your anger should be satisfied because it's been dealt with in one way or the other. Two biblical options. And so you can cover it by overlooking it. You can cover sin by addressing it. And James uses it this way in James chapter 5, verse 20. He says that covering a sin is turning a sinner from the evil of his ways or the error of his ways. You see, so you're helping them to do it. It's just like what we do as parents, right? We help our children to... we deal with their sins, not just to, we're not trying to punish them for that infraction, but we're trying to train them so that they learn not to do that, to turn them from the error of their ways. And hopefully they come to know the Lord, they come to trust in the Lord, they come to see that I, I can't do this on my own. We're saying, hey, right, you got it now. Let me take you to Jesus, right? And that is, that's what we're trying to do. And you're doing that with not just your children, but your brothers and sisters. Maybe they already know Christ, but you're trying to turn them from that. Paul uses it the same way in Romans 4, in verse 7. You see, it pursues a constructive solution. You help the person grow in obedience to God. That is covering it. It's another way of covering it. There's two ways of covering it. You can overlook it. You can say, you know, I don't need to address this this time. And my anger is now satisfied. I'm, I'm, I'm covering it. It's done. I'm not bringing this up again. Or you may say, you know, this keeps happening. I've covered it quite a few times. The next time it happens, if it's a good moment for us to talk about it, or I'm going to say, let's find a time where we can talk about it. You know, you've done this regularly now for a while. Can we sit down and talk about this? Can we work through this? Because this is a recurring issue. Okay. You are pursuing, and that takes us back to where we were originally, right? Pursuing a biblical solution. One biblical solution is to overlook it. The other is to address it. Okay. And again, it's constructive. Your goal is to help them obey God. Right? Or to do that more consistently. Okay, so that's another way of covering. And fourth, <clears throat> so be slow to become angry, cover sin by overlooking it, or cover sin by addressing it. And then you might do this. This goes along with the covering by overlooking. Do good to the person who offended you. And turn over to Romans 12. And I uh, appreciated all the 
comments that I've been receiving on uh, this series and uh, how you're finding it helpful. And seems to not be making you angry, so that's good. Um, but it, in the comments, it, it, uh, one person this week touched on this, what I was planning to say. And uh, so great minds think alike, right? So Romans 12, do good to the person who offended you. Do good to the person who offended you. In other words, return their evil with good. Romans 12, verse 17. And, and this is kind of the chief passage on vengeance and vindication and the way we should think about it. Okay, the first word, never. Okay, so if you weren't real sure, you're like, John, I don't know if you're right that, you know, punitive anger is not ever okay for us. Well, here it is. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Again, what? Never take your own revenge. Okay, so if it wasn't clear, it better be now. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's his job, not yours. Whenever you're trying to vindicate in in, in that sense of, of vengeance towards someone, to punish them, you're operating above your job grade, okay? That belongs to God, not you. But if your enemy is hungry, this is what you do. Feed him, and if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. What does that mean? Verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So this whole idea of heaping burning coals on someone's head, the idea was that you do good to them. They sin against you. They offended you. You do something good back to them. And this does work. Not every time because people are sinners, right? But very often times... They will feel the shame of what they did. It's the practical wisdom from the Word of God. So somebody offends you, you respond in kindness, in love, in being good to them, doing good to them, helping them. You know, I found this in my secular job for years, that people would you know, do something, they're being hateful or inconsiderate or whatever, and I take it as an opportunity to, to do something back to them not perfectly all the time, right? But I've worked at trying to do that, to respond to them with good. And they, over time, will start, you know, like, you know, I need to stop doing that. that they start feeling the shame of it. And again, it's not, not going to happen every time necessarily, but we are called to do it whether it happens or not. And, and as you do that, pray that God uses the good you do to convict them of their sin. Okay, let's take up uh, two special cases to finish off our lesson today. Is it okay to be angry with God? Whenever you experience intense suffering, you might be tempted to become angry with God. Now, let me first say, and this is always true, again, James 1, if you're tempted to be angry with God, you've not sinned yet. When you're tempted, you haven't sinned. Okay, then you can go back and read James 1. He'll explain it in more detail. We don't have time to go into that. It's what you do with that temptation. If you embrace it, you go run with it. Okay, now you sin. But being tempted, so you might become tempted to become angry with God. 
And a couple of things I want to say about that. First, know that God cares deeply for you in your affliction, whether you can sense that or not. He does feel deeply. He cares deeply about you in your affliction. He truly does understand. He sympathizes with you. And He grieves with you. We talked about that a little bit in Sunday school this morning, where you know, God grieves over sin. And so if somebody sins against you, uh, if you hurt, God grieves with you. Second, there's also, there's also an inner logic, one commentator called it, in our suffering that we often miss. There's a the built-in inner logic. God has a purpose, a good purpose in our afflictions. They're not meaningless. They don't just happen. All of your afflictions, they, they don't just happen. God has a good purpose in every one of them. He is preparing us to be able to fully enjoy what He has planned for us in eternity. He's preparing us to be able to fully enjoy what He has planned for us in eternity. And, and think about this. You don't turn there, but Second Corinthians 4.17, Paul explained to us, he called momentary light affliction. And you're like, yeah, mine's not momentary and it's not light. Well, but remember what Paul's doing here is we're going to see is he's comparing it to something. So he's saying by comparison, it is momentary. And just to make the point, okay, so maybe you you have an affliction that's your whole life and you live to 100 years old. Okay, that seems like a long time on this side. But 5,000 years into eternity, <laughs> that was nothing, Right? By comparison, you see what he's talking about. Momentary light affliction. I, I know it doesn't seem light, but he's saying again by comparison, and I'm going to illustrate that in a minute. But he says, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Far beyond all comparison. <clears throat> and, and if you wonder, well, you know, Paul didn't know what, what suffering was. Oh my, you haven't read your Bible. <laughs> Just go read Second Corinthians. Because he, he's got that long list, right? Of all these things, and you're just like, okay, you know, dangers from robbers and dangers from countrymen, danger, you know, and, and it's like here and there and there, you know. And he knew. And he could say this. He knew well that our suffering can seem like a mountain of heavy boulders. We can go to the next slide, please. Um, <clears throat> you see... That's you and, and your afflictions. It seems like mountains of heavy boulders or a big mountain of heavy boulders. And I get it. It, it does feel that way. I'm not saying it doesn't. Paul's not saying it doesn't feel that way. But he's saying, brothers and sisters, I, I need you to view this in light of eternity, in light of what's coming, so that you can... Deal with this appropriately so that you can understand what God is doing, okay? Because he's, he's, what He's saying to us is that when we arrive in eternity and begin to enjoy our inheritance, those boulders will, by comparison, seem like a few grains of sand. So we can go to the next slide. And you see there, those boulders on the left side, they're now grains of sand, okay? By comparison, okay? 
And then you've got, by comparison, this enormous treasure chest of everything that, and it's just, you know, it's not like we're going to get a bunch of money, but it's just representative of all the spiritual blessings that we're getting a little bit now, or it's a lot now, but we're going to get so much more in heaven. You know, and heaven's going to blow us away when we get there. You see, when we break through to the other side, we will stagger at the mind-blowing mountain range of glorious blessings that God has in store for us. Amen? Do you get that? I know it seems like a mountain up against you right now when you're, if you're going through suffering and intense affliction. But Paul says, oh... But I'm, let me give you a window into eternity here. So there's this little window. We're gonna, I'm going to open it up for you. And I want you to look in there. It, that, that there's something that if you put them in the scales, that there's no comparison. It's kind of that Isaiah 40, you know, where it's like, you know, the nations are just, you know, dust to God. And actually they're less than dust. They're nothing, you know, and less than nothing, right? That's how it will be for us. When we get, when we step in onto the other side, when we go home to be with the Lord, and we see all that He has in store for us, we will stagger at that. Like, oh my. As Johnny Erickson Tata says, you know, the first 23 seconds of heaven will make up for everything. Because we're going to see how wonderful that is. You see, and so Paul is saying, I know, and I'm giving you help to deal with it now, but part of that help is to understand what God is doing. He's preparing you right now so that you can enjoy that. You see, there's this inner logic. He's working in our afflictions right now so that we will better enjoy what's in store for us. What He has there reserved for us. That Jesus has bought for us with His blood. You see, and so your affliction is is helping you get to that point so that when you're there, you appreciate it in ways you couldn't have before. I mean, think about it. If if we had never sinned and we lived in the Garden of Eden and everything was all fine and and then we, you know, are in heaven and we, we, we couldn't appreciate all these wonderful things. I mean, there are things we wouldn't even know. We wouldn't understand forgiveness. We wouldn't understand grace and mercy and all these things. We wouldn't know those. How much more going through our afflictions will we be able to appreciate? And we'll fall on our knees and, oh, Lord, I can't believe what you've done for me and what is reserved here for me. That said, anger at God is always sinful. I wanted you to understand the compassion of Scripture first before I said that. But we have to say that. Anger at God is always sinful. Remember, what does anger do? Anger responds to a perceived evil. You think something was wrong. That was something done was wrong. And so to be angry with God means that we believe He has done something evil or He didn't prevent an evil that he should have prevented. Either way, we're saying he did wrong. And again, it's different from being tempted to be angry with God. Okay? We all might at some point be tempted to be angry with God. But we need to stop it in its tracks right there. Okay? And we're going to talk about how do we, what do we do then? 
You see, if you're angry with God, you're accusing him of wrong. And to accuse God of evil is blasphemy. Why? Because God is perfect. He's righteous. He's holy. That's why we can't ever accuse him of wrong. He doesn't do wrong. He can't. And, you know, sadly, some Christian, and I use that very loosely, counselors, counsel their people, their their counselees, to vent against God. And they'll say things like, well, he's a big boy, he can handle it. Well, he can handle it. But you better not do it. You see, they don't care that they're subjecting you, the counselee, to, if you're a believer, to God's chastisement. And if you're not a believer, they don't care that they're subjecting you to God's judgment forever and ever and ever. They would, Don't go to people like that. If they say that to you, you run. You might, you might rebuke them and say, that is not what the Bible says, and then you get out of there. Because that, that is, I mean, it's horrible to subject counselees to, to terrible advice like that. The biblical option, on the other hand, actually helps you. And it avoids blasphemy. And let me draw out a few things for us that I hope will be helpful to you. First, as we already said, realize that suffering is actually a key part of God's plan to do you good. Always is. You can say, you know, I don't know exactly why God has taken me through this, but I do know He always works to do good. Through affliction. And he's doing good in me even though I don't see it right now. That's faith. I'm going to trust that he's doing that good. He's doing good now and he's going to be, and he's doing much more good in eternity that I will get to enjoy if I'm his child. That's part of that inner logic we were talking about. Second, draw near to the God who cares deeply for you in your, in your suffering. Draw near to the God who cares deeply for you in your suffering. Cry out to God and lament. We're going to talk for a minute in about lament here. <clears throat> and so if we go ahead, thank you guys. Um, biblical lament. And, and I can't go into this in detail because we don't have time for that. But I wanted just enough, just enough, give you just enough so we can get started on it and you know the route to head. Biblical lament. Uh, quoting from um, Mark Vrogop here in his book, uh, Dark clouds, deep mercy. Lament, uh, lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. And that's really good. You go read Lamentations, you read the Lament Psalms, and that's what you find. It's a prayer in pain. You go to God and you hurt. You cry. You tell Him how much you hurt. You tell Him... Uh, I've got more to say here in a second on that, but you're just being honest with God. Okay? It's a prayer in pain, but note, it leads to trust, and that is key. What is a complaint? Okay, because in biblical lament, you're making a complaint. This is not the same that, oh, mom, I hate broccoli. And it's not that kind of complaint, right? This, a biblical complaint is just bringing to God your hurt, your pain. Okay, uh, Virgop says, a complaint is an honest and blunt conversation with God. Now, honest and blunt, I want to add a few things, which he, he does talk about but uh, as you read through the whole book, but honest and blunt, but also it has to be respectful. We're talking about God, okay? And you have to fear God always. It has to be respectful. 
You go, you can, you can say, Lord, I don't know why that, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know why this is taking so long. But I know that you know what you're doing. I just, I'm just pouring out my pain to you. And that's good and holy. It needs to be hopeful that leading to trust, you know, God, you're doing something. I I can't see it. And I want to be honest with you, you know, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I'm just barely hanging on by a thread because I, I can't see it, but I know you're good. It's hopeful. And it's also humble. Again, he's God, you're not. Humble. Lord, you are my creator You are my God. You are my Lord. You're the potter. I'm the clay. I'm humble. You, I'm trusting you in this. It leads to a deeper trust in God. Okay. Lament leads to a deeper trust in God. So if you feel like you've been lamenting, but you don't ever get to the point of a deeper trust, you haven't been lamenting biblically. Okay, you need to start over again and get some instruction on what biblical lament is so that you end up in a place of trust, deeper trust. And then, <clears throat> cry out to God in lament. So let's go to the next one, thinking. <clears throat> cry out to God in lament. Move toward God in lament. That is the direction of biblical lament. You're moving toward God. Initially, you're coming saying, Lord, I don't understand. I wonder why. I'm hurting. But you're moving toward Him. Study the lament psalms. Okay, and I've gave you, Virgop has a list of them in the back and I put them on here for you. Um, pick some of those. Read through all of them and find one that, that really says, you know, this is what I'm feeling. Okay? And then meditate on it. Study those. Study Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, the book by Mark Virgop. Excellent book. And, and then, uh, Terry reminded me yesterday we had GBC at GBC here in Sunday school. We had lessons on lament, and so I refer you back to those as well. Um, and a lot of helpful material to help us lament. Okay, turn over to Psalm 13. So we're going to just do a real quick jump into lament here, and I realize I'm. Running short on time, but I decided to add more material here that I thought was necessary. So, Psalm 13. Fortunately, a short psalm. We're only going to read part of it. So, David laments here. His complaint is raw. His pain is like an exposed, tender wound. Verses 1 and 2. How long, O Yahweh... Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Now, I want you to see his faith clinging to God. This is what separates us from unbelievers. And biblical counseling separates it from that so-called Christian counseling, which is just really worldly uh, bad stuff. Verse 5. But, that's what you'll notice common in lament psalms. I'm hurting, but. That's trust, hope, right? But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice. See, this hopefulness. I know one day I will rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to Yahweh because He has dealt bountifully with me. I know He's done that in the past, and He's going to do it again. That's hope. That's trust. 
You see how lament ends you up, takes you to a place of deeper trust. Third, so we said realize that your sufferings are a key part of God's plan to do good for you and in you. And then draw near to Him and lament. Third, realize that your suffering is designed by God for spiritual growth. And this is a little bit of overlap, but there's I want to call out something different here. What part of God's character, what aspect of His attributes, His character, do you need to grow in? Because when God takes us through intense suffering, I find that typically He is trying to grow us in one of at least four areas that are real typical, real common that I find. Either His sovereignty, His goodness, that's the one I wrestle with the most. He he took Connie and me through His sovereignty back in the earlier part of our marriage and through some trials that we had to go through. Now, for me, goodness. I believe he's good. I don't doubt it at all. It's just like, I'm Lord, Lord, I, I know you're good, but I have a hard time resting in that. Okay? So, sovereignty, goodness, wisdom. <laughs> you know, I know God knows what he's doing, but I'm having a hard time trusting that. And faithfulness, faithful to his promises. He's going to keep his word. Okay? It's usually one of those. When you identify the one or more that he's working on in you, go to Scripture. Get with a mature brother or sister and learn how to trust and rest in that area of God's character. He always wants to do that. That's something you can be assured of every time. He wants you to trust in him more. Okay. One more, real quick, one more special case. Anger with yourself. Is that sinful or not? Well, it might be. Is it okay to be angry with yourself? It depends on whether it's constructive or punitive. Okay? So, a lot of times, it's punitive for us. Uh, people come and say, well, I'm struggling with anger with at myself. It's usually punitive. In other words, they feel like they've let themselves down. Or, you know, you beat yourself up because you think, I'm better than this. Okay? That's punitive anger and it arises from your pride. There's a lot there we can't go into right now, but it is not constructive. Okay? You're putting yourself in God's place as judge. And we find typically what happens is these same folks, they refuse to accept God's forgiveness for their sins. They're like, no, I have a higher standard than God. Oh, really? You don't want to go there. And they won't accept His forgiveness. That's sin. That's all sinful anger. But if it's corrective, it won't be this lingering loathing of yourself. If you, if you, you know, you, you sin, you should be angry with yourself, but it should be short-lived, right? You need to deal with it quickly. It needs to be constructive. You do something about it. What do you do? You repent and change. Okay? You work on it so that you don't do it again. Okay? And it should take you to a biblical solution. God commands you to put off vindictive anger. Learn how to obey Him by applying these skills. And then you will, Romans 12, learn how to truly be at peace with the people around you. As we come to the Lord's table, think about this. I want us to meditate on this. God's punitive anger toward those of us who are His children was poured out at the cross. All the punitive anger that God could have had toward you if you were his child, was poured out on Jesus. And he was satisfied there. 
Jesus, God's Son, gladly received the full penalty for our sins. And now God is no longer angry with us in a punitive way. If you're his child, he is never angry with you in a punitive way. His anger is always constructive toward his children. Hebrews 12, his anger toward us is that of a loving father who seeks the best for us.